The reading is taken from Acts chapter 8, reading from verse 26 to 40. Philip and the Ethiopian Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, Queen of the Ethiopians. The man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Amen, and may God add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. Philip. Acts chapter 26 actually calls him Philip the Evangelist, perhaps because of this story that we read in Acts 8. It also tells us he had four unmarried daughters, poor man. But when we were introduced to Philip for the first time in last week's reading, we might have called him Philip the accountant. He had a, a not very dynamic job. He'd been appointed to the church's administration committee, him and six others, including a guy called Stephen. And their job was to sort out the finances and the food and make sure things were running smoothly in the church. In fact, as we left Acts chapter 6, the church was running very smoothly in Jerusalem. New people were coming in, the church was growing, there was teaching, there was fellowship, there was food. Everything seemed fine. Until it happened. Stephen, Philip's friend on the committee, preached a sermon and the authorities in Jerusalem weren't pleased with it. 
In fact, so much so that Stephen got taken out. And at the end of chapter 7, we find Stephen being stoned to death. So a church that suddenly found itself in deep mourning and fear. And then the persecution began. And so the disciples in that comfortable place that they'd been in, that lovely fellowship in Jerusalem, suddenly found themselves scattered. They fled to Judea, Samaria and beyond. But here's the interesting thing. Scattered. And yet God began to use them. Scattered with this calamity and yet God began to do new things. They began to share the gospel, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and in Samaria, the places they went. In fact, as Acts chapter 1 verse 8, when Jesus had said to them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They might have wondered how that was going to happen. They were quite comfortable in Jerusalem. And suddenly through this calamity and this sadness, God had sent them to preach the gospel in new places, in new ways. God working his purposes out in everything that had seemed like a disaster. When I came in February, we had all sorts of thoughts and expectations for our church here. Lots of things that go well and I was going to learn them and we were going to move forward together, probably at a fairly relaxed rate initially at least. And then this calamity. And we've been living with that, haven't we? The sadness, the difficulties, the sense of loss in the last months. Many of you have been stuck in. Others have found themselves not able to go where they wanted to go. But what is God doing in that? The end of chapter 4, we're told that as the disciples prayed, God began to shake the place that they were. And maybe that's a reminder that God never leaves things comfortable, that we can just sort of get them a little bit better as we work together. He's always shaking things up. And sometimes in the crisis and in the pain is where God is leading and changing and moving us. Time to think just now, what is God saying? What is he saying about the values of our society? What is he saying about the old normal as he moves us on to something that might be quite different? And what are the situations that God is putting us into, the opportunities that he's giving us that we might share the gospel in different ways, in new ways? We believe in a God who shakes things up and sometimes that's not very comfortable. Philip had his life shaken up. First of all, he was asked to join a committee. Well, we've all had that experience in the church and it looked quite safe. Maybe he had some administrative gifts. And then after the calamity came, the committee was scrapped and they were traveling around and he found himself in Samaria and he began to preach the good news there. That must have been quite a tall order, but it seemed to go okay. It seemed to go quite well. In fact, let's just read, shall we, together what it says in the beginning of chapter 8. On that day, that's after Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down 
to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. So there was great joy in the city. But it didn't stop there. Philip might have been quite happy in in Samaria. It seemed to be going quite well. The church was growing. But then God put him into a new challenge. Told him to go down out of Samaria, right down to the south, into the desert, to a desert road. It seemed a pretty silly place to go. One of the commentators said it was the absurd command of God doing something that made no sense. And I wonder sometimes we find ourselves in places ourselves that seem dry, fruitless, strange. Nothing seems to be happening. Nobody seems to want to know. And in those places as well, we have to learn to pray and to ask ourselves, what is God saying here? What is God asking from me in this place? So Philip meets a man. It doesn't look very promising at first because he's different. He's an Ethiopian. He's an official, an important official of a very rich queen, Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And there he is in his big high chariot, very different from Philip. Well, I suppose Philip's an accountant and he's a treasurer. Maybe they've got something in common after all. But no, they're very different. The man is probably black. Now that in itself wouldn't have been a problem for Jews. Race didn't come into things too much. But what would have come into things is that the guy was a eunuch, castrated. That meant he could never become a Jew. Well, circumcision and castration don't really go together. But more than that, the Israelite law said that a man who had been castrated had no place among God's people. So here was a man that had traveled. He traveled for some reason all the way from Ethiopia, probably a month's journey to worship in the temple. And when he got there, he wouldn't have been allowed in. He could have come into the court of the woman, sorry, the court of the Gentiles, but he wouldn't have been allowed into the court of the woman, never mind into the place where the worshipers really were. He was someone who was excluded. That's significant for this reason. If you've been reading the book of Acts, you might have noticed this. This is the second, only the second encounter where we're told a little bit about what happened. There are lots of people who'd become Christians by this time, but only two encounters we're told about. One was a lame man outside the temple who physically couldn't get up the steps to get in. And the second is a eunuch who is forbidden to enter, not a Jew. Two people who are excluded from worship, who are excluded from the people of God. And here are the Christians explicitly, Luke tells us, saying these people are exactly the people that Jesus reaches out to, that Jesus wants to include. I wonder what that tells us about our own mission. In these days, we're anxious to be back in the church ourselves and we're thinking about the things that prevent us, exclude us and we'll have groups of people asking questions about how do we open the way that we might come and we might be in God's house again. But is that God's heart? Or is God's heart far more, what about the people who haven't been in? Who've never been included? 
who have always felt on the margins of things? What about the people who've never heard about me? And perhaps if our hearts were such that, yeah, we want people to be in God's house, but not first and foremost ourselves or our friends, but we want to find a way that the love of Jesus Christ reaches out to everyone. And we want to do that with the determination and imagination and commitment that we will put in to ensuring that as soon as possible we can return into a church and into a physical building. What if that was on our heart? Incidentally, it's worth saying something else here, because whatever that eunuch was, he was someone for whom the usual rules of men and women and gender identity had been, well, made very difficult, and that had left him excluded. I absolutely don't want to get into all the debates that there are in the church and society just now about people who's, for whom gender is difficult. But we might just simply say this. Philip just looked at the person in front of him and loved him and wanted to include him. And whatever we might want to say about men and women and gender identity, and the Bible has lots to say on that, what about a starting point that just simply said, let's love the person and invite them to come and know Jesus Christ. That seems not a bad place to begin. The main thing, though, is that we just make the person in front of us our missionary priority, that we pray for them and that we seek somehow to find a place to introduce them to the most loving person we've ever met, which is Jesus. And that's what Philip did that day. What to say? Whenever we're put in a situation of talking about God, I suppose that's what we begin to think. What did I say? Philip had been sent down there to that road and as he saw the Ethiopian in his chariot, he probably thought the same as well. What on earth am I going to say to this Ethiopian? How do I begin to talk about Jesus? And then he got closer. He ran to catch up with it. And as he did that, he began to hear something which must have blown his mind away. The guy was reading from the Bible. He was reading from a scroll he'd bought in Jerusalem. The scroll was Isaiah. And the words were words that Christians had already connected with the person of Jesus. Wow! God was already at work. God was already at work in this man. If you think about it for a minute. Philip just happened to have been sent down to that road and just at the point he was there, it just happened that the Ethiopian was coming along. It just happened he was on a long journey back from Jerusalem where it just happened he'd gone there to worship and it just happened he'd brought a scroll and it just happened he was reading it aloud. It just happened to be at the moment Philip was passing and it just happened to be at the bit that Philip knew was all about Jesus. Coincidence? Or actually God at work? And here's... An important thought for us as we begin to meet a new person or we begin to ask how do I speak to a member of my family about Jesus? Or we begin to ask how we cope in a, in a new workplace or perhaps in a new condition after all that's happened. Is it possible that God doesn't start working when I turn up? When I start praying? Or is it possible that actually he's already doing something in the life of this person who he's known since their birth and he's loved forever? And is it possible that my prayer isn't, oh Lord, suddenly come and use me and change everything, so much as, Lord, 
show me what you're doing and show me what my little bit might be in this person's journey. How I might show, love, speak of the Jesus that I've found. You know, sometimes we think mission is about what we do. I think mission is much more about discovering what God is doing. What is God doing in Motherwell right now? In your family right now, in your workplace right now, among your friends right now? What is he calling you to do in being part of that? And here's one other thought. The guy's reading the Bible. All right, it wouldn't be a Bible like this. He'd have a massive big scroll that he'd bought in Jerusalem. But it all starts with the Bible. I'm a great fan of the Scottish Bible Society. And and they have a very simple idea, which is this, that they can start mission simply by getting the word of God out there. That people can read it. That's why we got the, 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 the little... Um, Dear Theo books, they come from the Bible Society, that that basic idea of, of encouraging people to read the scriptures. Do we have that confidence in the Bible today? To read it ourselves, but also to recommend it to others. Do you have children in your family who are perhaps not brought to church? Buy them Bible stories. Are you worried about your own children as they grow up that they may or may not come to know this faith? Tell them Bible stories. Do you have a friend who's beginning to ask questions about faith? Buy them a Bible and get it in a modern translation. We've got plenty dear Theos. Maybe you'd like to take some of them and and give them to some folk. The Glow Centre is now open, full of Christian literature. But this basic idea that the Bible matters and it does things. The scroll of Isaiah that was being read that day would have contained several chapters. And I wonder that they might have read a little bit further on in the scroll that the Ethiopian had, and it would have had these words, Isaiah 55. As the rain and the snow come from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purposes which I sent it. One of the hallmarks of the Protestant Reformation was that the Bible needed to be read by people in their homes and not just in church when the preacher expounded it. In fact, they set up the entire Scottish education system for everybody that that would be what happened. Can we have the same confidence today that this book can change lives? And if you do, can I just say, Read it. Mission then is about what God is already doing and our call to recognise it, which is quite interesting here because God was already scattering them to perform his mission to Jerusalem, Judea, Susamaria, and now to an Ethiopian who literally, as far as they were concerned, would have lived at the ends of the earth. It's interesting that that Ethiopian asks a question later on in the passage. He says, what is to stop me being baptised? Well, the answer was actually quite a lot. 
For a start, he wasn't a Jew. The early church, we have to remember in these chapters, was all Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. Jesus had been a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. All of these things were Jewish. And they hadn't yet got their head around the fact that it might go to Gentiles as well. Philip had already been a bit naughty. He preached the gospel to Samaritans at the beginning of chapter 8. And Samaritans were, well, they were almost Jews, but not quite. And the part of chapter 8 we didn't read, have a look at it at home. Peter and the others had to go to Samaria, check out what was going and say, yeah, God is doing this. And before they got their heads around that, here's that same Philip off pushing the boundaries still further. He's baptizing someone that's not even a Jew, pushing the boundaries all the time. We said at the beginning, as we looked at Acts, that this was part of the problem with the name. It says the Acts of the Apostles, as if the Apostles were doing everything. Actually, it was much more God's Holy Spirit that was doing things, and Apostles were just trying to keep and catch up. I think that's not a bad place in our day as well. What is God doing? What is the Holy Spirit saying? We did a Zoom communion and the theology will catch up later. An attitude of can-do, an attitude of openness, an attitude of excitement, because that's where it begins as God's Spirit begins to move. But if we return to the scroll now, reading from Isaiah at chapter 53, what a blown... Philip away is it, it was a passage that right from the beginning the Christians looked at because it was the song of the servant. It was all about a servant of God who would come, who would be humiliated, who would be rejected. But somehow God would pour all the sins and the heart of the world on him. And yet he would be the servant of God. It was a passage that for Christians spoke about the Messiah and spoke very clearly about Jesus. Here's some of the words from Isaiah 53, which would have been on that same part of the scroll. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. and By his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before his shearers is silent. He did not open his mouth. The Ethiopian was asking who this was. Was it Isaiah or was it someone else? But I wonder as the Ethiopian read that passage, he must have also been seeing bits of his own story within it. It talks about someone that was humiliated Someone who was cut off from his own. Someone who would have no descendants, no legacy, no children. And would have no part in God's people. Surely that was his story. Who is this? He asks Philip. And as Philip begins to explain to him that this is Jesus who went through all of this for you. The Ethiopian begins to have a heart that warms and says, I want to know this Jesus. I want to be his. The end part of that scroll from Isaiah 56 said this, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. And yet 
let no eunuch complain, I am just a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths and chooses what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them my joy of my house of prayer. The burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted at my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That must really have warmed that Ethiopian eunuch's heart. He'd just gone to Jerusalem. He'd travelled a whole month to be accepted and would have been turned away. And here he learned of the Jesus who loved him, who held and heard and felt all his pain and rejection, had suffered all of that on the cross for him. And now offered him not just forgiveness, but a place among his people, a future and a hope. A wounded man that was not wanted, hearing the beautiful promise of Jesus the Messiah. And that's mission. That's what we are called to share. To say to those that are hurting, those that feel rejected, excluded, those that are lonely. Not just does Jesus feel your pain because he stood in your shoes, but Jesus has died on the cross for you. And his beauty is for you. His love is for you. His forgiveness is for you. His new life is for you. His place among his people is for you. He took your pain. He stood in your place. As the Ethiopian said, what is to stop me being baptised? He wasn't really asking a question about Jewish law or protocol or whether there was water. He was saying, if God has done that for me, then surely I can be baptised. I can be his. Do we have the confidence to offer that good news to the world? But more than that, with all the hurts and the bitterness and the conflicts, and the fears that we have inside, do we find for ourselves in Jesus, the one who heals and restores, forgives and melts, who stood in our place and died our death and rose again that we might be forgiven. His atonement for us, his taking the punishment that we deserve, his offer of life fills us with joy, but also means that we do have confidence to share with the world that this Jesus is good news. It's not about church services or lovely music or flowers or any of the other things that we sometimes get caught up in. It's about Jesus. I pray that as we look together that that might begin to excite us. That Ethiopian, we don't know his story, the church in Ethiopia is a very ancient church and the Coptic faith traces its roots back to this story of this man who became a Christian. But again, we can read the beginning of perhaps that scroll of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 52, where it says in verse 7 this, 
How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those that bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings and proclaim salvation to Jerusalem, saying, your God reigns. Your God reigns. Let all God's people say, Amen.